Thank you, Elder Bob, for sharing with us and for praying for us. What a joy that is to see the gospel go forward in both locally and globally and to be part of what God is doing around the world. We ask uh, that, brothers and sisters, you would pray for the India team and for their ministry this November and for our elders that God would give them great wisdom and strength as they minister the gospel overseas. And we also want to ask for your prayers for the Shin family. They are in San Francisco this weekend. Um, Pastor James is speaking at San Francisco Bible Church. And please pray that God would richly uh, bless their time together and use his preaching to encourage the saints there. Uh, For this morning's uh, scripture reading, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And we have been... um, Greatly blessed by our series in the book of Galatians the last four weeks. It's been a tremendous encouragement to my heart. I know to yours as well, and that will be resuming uh, beginning next week. But for this morning, I want to take you to Luke chapter 16 and read from verses 19 to 31. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. These are the words of Jesus Christ. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. But besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I want to shepherd your hearts this morning. This morning isn't message isn't going to be an easy one to give, and it's not going to be an easy one to hear. If you've come this morning and the sun's shining bright and it's a beautiful day outside and you expected a nice pep talk that'll make you feel better, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But our Faithfulness desires to be faithful to the words of Christ and not to our own desires for what we would want to hear. This passage that is laid before us contains one of the most difficult doctrines in all the Bible, if not the most difficult doctrine in the Word of God. One theologian called it that hideous doctrine. The other, another called it the most horrible doctrine in the Bible, the worst of all the teachings in God's Word. C.S. Lewis said of this, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. What is this doctrine that we are speaking of? It is the doctrine of conscious eternal punishment. It is the doctrine of hell. It is the doctrine that wicked sinners who do not receive the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins will spend an eternity in hell receiving the full penalty for their sins, which is the wrath of God poured out forever and ever. It is a horrible doctrine. It is a doctrine that we would in our heart, in our humanness, desire to to rip out from the word of God if we could because it is so terrible. If there was even one person who was in hell today, it would be, more than our hearts could bear, and yet we know that there are millions going to hell and heading toward a Christless eternity. Why study the doctrine of hell then? For this simple reason. The doctrine of hell is essential to our understanding of the gospel. 
We have said to you over and over again as a church that our desire as your shepherds, as your leaders, as your pastors, is to shepherd you into the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want you to go deeper into the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel which is the power of God in our lives. It's the power of God for salvation. And we want you to live gospel-centered lives, not only in the day of your salvation, but we want you to stand amazed at the gospel, to stand amazed at the cross every day of your life, to go deeper into the knowledge of God's grace and go deeper into the knowledge of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And yet, that is impossible without the doctrine of hell. It is impossible to go deeper into the gospel of God's grace until we understand the wrath of God that that we deserve because of our sins. It is impossible to understand grace, to understand the cross, unless we, from the starting point, understand what do we deserve because of our sins. What does justice require before we get to grace? The Apostle Paul understood this. That's why in the, the epistle of Romans in in unfolding to us the gospel of grace, he began with two chapters dealing with the wrath of God. And he said in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he said in Romans 11, behold, not only the, the kindness of God, but the severity of God. The doctrine of hell is essential to our understanding of grace. I will submit to you that, that if you have not stand amazed at grace, if you don't wake up every day astounded by grace, if the cross does not bring you to your knees in, in gratitude and thanksgiving, if you do not weep for joy at the treasure that you have found in Jesus Christ, then perhaps it's because you have not thought long and hard about the horrors of hell. Perhaps it is because you have neglected this doctrine. And so grace is just to you a word. It's just a concept. The cross is just a nice ornament of Christianity. It's not personal for you because you don't understand that this is, brothers and sisters, this is what we deserve. This is what we, all of us deserve because of our sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to be in hell today. Not tomorrow, not 50 years from now, not 100 years from now, today, because of the sins that we've already committed in our lives, we deserve to be in this place where God's wrath is poured out against the guilty. Hell is not God's overreaction to our sin. This is not God flipping out and and meeting out punishment that is disproportionate to the crime. No, hell is what is just. This is what is right. This is not one ounce of punishment more or less than what we deserve. This is what all of us deserve because of our sin. And if we don't begin here, if we don't start here, if we don't understand the gravity of our sin before a holy God, then the gospel will be preached to us with no effect. God's love will not move our hearts. His kindness will not seem wonderful to us. Our hearts will flatter ourselves into thinking that we are worthy of God's kindness. We are worthy of God's grace. We deserve to go to heaven because we have done so many good things from God and know the doctrine of hell shatters our pride and said that we are the worst of sinners. We deserve God's eternal judgment. And it is only by God's mercy, it is only by His grace, it's unmerited favor that that we are alive today that we are breathing, that we woke up and saw the sun rise and we had breakfast and say hi to our friends this morning and that we can even have have clothes on our back and and, and a roof over our heads. It is by the grace, the, the unmerited favor of God. But if we don't understand the doctrine of hell, oh, we'll just take all of it for granted and think in our hearts, this is what I've deserved, this is what I earned, this is the product of my good works because I'm a good person, God has blessed me. No, this doctrine teaches us that it is only by grace. It is all by grace. The truth is that Jesus talked more about hell than he did than any other person in the Bible. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. A couple years ago, I had the privilege of giving five consecutive messages on the doctrine of heaven. And after one of those messages, Elder Bob came up to me and said, Dan, you need to preach a message on hell. And he was right. Because you can't stand amazed at the wonders of heaven until you stand terrified at the horrors of hell. And the truth is that if we followed the footsteps of our Lord, we would preach ten messages on hell for every five messages on heaven. Because Jesus spoke of it so often. 
Matthew 8, 12, he described hell as a place of eternal darkness. He said that hell is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's weeping because of the hopelessness that is before them, the eternity of conscious punishment in hell. It is sorrow upon sorrow at the unbearable agony of the wrath of God. And it is gnashing because of the anger that is in their hearts because people who are in hell are still unregenerate. They have not had changed hearts because of Jesus Christ. They hate God. They rage against God. Even as they are suffering the torments of hell, they, they, they cry out in rage and gnash their teeth at in rebellion against God. Matthew 13, 42, Jesus said that hell is a fiery furnace where the wrath of God is poured out upon guilty sinners. And, and again, he said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you too sophisticated for this? Have you grown too complex, too educated? for such literal words in the Bible, a furnace of fire, eternal darkness. These are the words of our Lord. This is what it means to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 9.45, Jesus described hell as a place of unquenchable fire. In Mark 9.48, he said that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The, the literal word Jesus used for hell is Gehenna, which referred literally to a, a valley outside of Jerusalem in which trash and fire was burned. And a perpetual fire became a, the metaphor for the eternal fires of hell. Matthew 23, 33, he said to the religious leaders, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And this is not only the teaching of our Lord, it's found all throughout the New Testament. John the Baptist spoke of hell. Matthew 3.12, he said, Jesus will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Apostle Paul spoke of hell. Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Apostle John spoke of hell in Revelation 14.11 where he said the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 20 verse 14, he described hell as a lake of fire and he said that this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Was it possible to speak of these doctrines without great sorrow and great brokenness in our hearts? Is it possible to speak of people literally going to hell without feeling great compassion upon any who do not know Jesus Christ? Even Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together, but you were not willing. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I could wish myself accursed for my brethren who do not know Christ. If it were possible, I would go to hell so that they could go to heaven. This is a doctrine that causes us great, great horror, great, great terror. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet at the same time, it is through an acknowledgement that this is what our sins deserve that leads us to the cross, that leads us to grace, that leads us to Christ and the wonders of the blood of Christ, that Jesus Christ took our punishment, that he took our curse, that he took our hell, he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf, that we would not suffer what we deserve, but that we would receive grace forever and ever in heaven. Jonathan Edwards said, I resolved to live as if I had seen the torments of hell and the happiness of heaven. You know, this is a terrible doctrine. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a horrific doctrine, and yet it has so many practical benefits in our hearts. It bears such fruit in our lives if we meditate, as Edwards did, on the horrors of hell. What kind of benefits? First of all, it makes you a humble person. I mean, if you wake up every day and you, you believe that this is what I deserve, that because of my sins, I deserve hell, that it's only because of the grace of God that I'm not burning in hell today, you'll be a humble person. No one will be able to offend you. People can insult you, see terrible things about you. They cannot say anything worse to you than what the gospel has already said. It'll just roll off your shoulders. What, you, you call me a fool? Man, God's word says, I, I'm a hell-bound sinner. You can't get any lower than that. You will grow in your humility. C.J. Mahaney 
has uh, famously said, whenever people ask him, how are you doing today? He says, better than I deserve. And what, I, what he means by that is I deserve hell. Whatever God gives me is better than I deserve today. Meditating on hell will improve your relationships. It will, it will make, you a, a nice, it'll make you a kinder person. You'll forbear with people. I, I used to, I, I've been struggling in my own heart with just getting mad at people when people don't treat me the way I, I, I feel like I ought to be treated. Or, or they, they do dumb things, or they, or they sin, and, and in my heart I get angry. And after meditating long and hard about the doctrine of hell, I find that my heart is not as offended by other people's sins. Because the greatest of sins is the ones that I have in my own heart. And if I am a hell-bound sinner saved by grace, then other people's sins don't ruffle my feathers so much. It'll make you a more forgiving person, a more kinder person. Uh, meditating on hell will, will purify your soul. It will result in increased sanctification. Not because, not because we live in insecurity as Christians, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not that we, we don't sin because we, we're afraid of going to hell. But it is that we, we gaze uh, straight and, and we take a good hard look at this is what our sins deserve and we develop in our hearts a holy disgust for sin. We begin to hate sin. We begin to become disgusted by the world instead of being attracted to the world. And we are drawn to the loveliness of the cross and the love of God that's been displayed on our behalf. We, if we meditate on the cross, we will, we will not live trivial lives. It will wipe away the triviality from our lives. We will live purposefully. We will realize that life is short and eternity is long. Time just flies. Brethren, it's almost Thanksgiving again. I just blinked. It was Thanksgiving last year. It's Thanksgiving again. Holiday scenes are coming again. I looked at my kid the other day and he's almost, he's like huge. I, I used to hold him in my, in my arms. Some of you have little babies you're bringing into church. You're going to blink and they're going to be as big as my kid. And I looked at him and I was like, when did you get big? And he was like typical junior higher, right? He's like, I don't know. You know give me something to eat, right? I mean, time goes so fast. Our lives here are such, it's a vapor. We're here today and gone tomorrow and eternity is forever. Life is short. Eternity is long. We cannot, we, hell makes us not live trivial lives, but to live purposely for Christ. Hell also increases our compassion for the lost. We begin to pray for family, for the world. We begin to pray for the Czech Republic for the Marcus and Amy Denny, for India, for Dr. Peter Malakar and his ministry, we began to pray for the India team. We, we realized that we are not doing these things because we have nothing better to do as a church or because this is what churches are supposed to do is send teams somewhere and put pictures on the wall that we, we can say, wow, we have missionaries. No, this is, how can they hear without a preacher? How can they be saved without the gospel? And how can they have a preacher unless... They are sent. And it is the compassion that we have on the lost that causes us to pray for lost sinners. C.H. Spurgeon said this, if, if sinners will be damned, at least them, let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them, let them perish with, with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If, if hell must be filled, then at least let it be filled the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Oh, that's, a, that's a Calvinist speaking. That's a man who believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation, and yet his heart was broken over the, the many who were streaming on their way to Christless eternity. Parents, if you meditate long and hard on the doctrine of hell, it will focus your parenting. It will, it will wipe away all the non-essentials in your relationship with your child. You and I, and I'm a parent, so I, 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 I know what's going on in your heart because it's going on in my heart. We have so many idolatrous desires in our hearts, don't we? We have so many confusing, cluttering desires for our children. We want them to be successful. We want them to be good-looking. We want them to uh, be athletic. We want them to win awards. We want them to get good grades on their SATs. We want them to go to a prestigious university and be successful and bring family glory to our name. That's all in our hearts in the doctrine of hell. If you meditate long and hard in it, long enough, you just realize that none of that is important. 
all that is so trivial. There's only one thing that matters, and that is that, that salvation comes to my child. That's the only thing that matters in eternity. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give for his soul? What will it profit my child if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will my child give for his soul if he has lost it in eternity? Will he thank his dad? Dad, thank you. Sent me to a great university. Or will he curse my name because... I did not make the gospel the center point of my parenting relationship with him. Oh, this doctrine will help us in our parenting. It will unite the church. It will make us the the main thing, the main thing. We will put non-essential things aside. We will realize there is only one message that we are here for, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else can save a man's soul from hell. So many fruits of meditating on this doctrine because it is the... It is the foundation for the gospel message. It is the beginning of the gospel message. It is the first thing that we ought to preach to ourselves and to others when we give the gospel message. The message of God's holiness. The message of our sin. The message of what we deserve because of our sin. And so Jesus in Luke 16 tells this story. It is the story of a man who woke up and found himself in hell. It is a disturbing story. It is a... It's a, it's a story, a, a testimony of one who has been in hell. If this man were to stand up and speak to us, what would he say? The main character of Luke 16 is the rich man. There are two men in the story. There's a rich man and Lazarus. Although Lazarus is the man with the name, he never speaks. He's really only there for contrast. The rich man is the main character. And Jesus makes a story about a rich man who goes to hell, not because only rich men go to hell, because we know that you don't go to hell because you're rich. You go to hell because you're a sinner. And poor people go to hell and rich people go to hell. But Jesus makes this particular story, a story about a rich man who goes to hell, because his audience was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were people who loved money, who thought that money was a sign of favor of God. And in Luke 16, 14, it says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. Jesus wants to to shock these Pharisees. He wants to alert them to the idea that, that you can be rich in time and be poor in eternity. That riches are not necessarily a sign of God's favor upon life and he wants them and he wants us to beware let the love of money grip our hearts that the love of money damn our souls for all eternity that we be on guard that we do not be captivated by the world's riches and be allured by the world's attractions but we realize that there is only one thing that makes us rich in this life and that is faith in Jesus Christ and everything else is here today and gone tomorrow. I was reading this week an article from Forbes magazine, the youngest billionaires in the world today. And there was in the, one of the men in that article was Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, who's worth, I don't know, $6 billion or upwards. And he's not even 30 yet. And other men who, they haven't even reached middle age and they're swimming in billions of dollars. And I could only think, reading that article, that if these men do not have Christ, how poor they are. How, how sad. How sad to have, have all the yachts and all the mansions and all the, all the glory in this life. And you're here today and gone tomorrow. And you're eternally poor like this rich man was. This is the point of Jesus' Jesus' teaching is he purposely makes the man who goes to hell in this passage a rich man, that we would realize that money is not all what is cracked up to be. And that we are not deceived into following after riches. And so he says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. This, this guy has it all. I mean, he's, he's swimming in it. 
He is living a self-indulgent life. He has, notice, the best clothes, he has the best food, and he has the best housing. That's what everyone's after in this world today. They want better housing, more exclusive gated communities. They're more real estate. They're after better food, more expensive restaurants to dine in, better clothing, fashion wear, that they can live in luxury. And this man had it all. He was clothed in purple, the clothing of the rich. He feasted sumptuously every day, what most people had for their parties. He had it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And verse 20 talks of the gate of his home, which was most likely an ornamented gate at his mansion. He lived in that equivalent of a gated community. And in contrast, verse 20, there was a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, the contrast can't be more startling here. The rich man is clothed with the finest of clothing and Lazarus is clothed with sores and with ulcers. The rich man has the finest of feasting and food and Lazarus is at the floor of his table only desiring to, in the place of animals to lick up the scraps that would fall from the rich man's table. The rich man is, lives in a gated community. The poor man is literally cast at his gate. The idea is that he is a cripple and somebody has taken Lazarus and literally thrown him down at the rich man's gate, hoping that maybe the rich man would have compassion on Lazarus and provide for him. And in this story, the silence testifies to the hardness of the rich man's heart, that he did not use his riches to care for men like Lazarus, but he used his riches to care for himself. Who would you want to be more like? Who would you want to follow after? Whose life would you want to emulate? A man who has the best education, the best career, the best home, extended family, Or would you want to emulate a man who is so poor he cannot feed himself, who has no medical care, who cannot care for himself, who is helpless? And before you decide who you'd rather follow, consider the whole story. The whole story is not just their life here on earth, but it extends to their life in eternity. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The point of the story is not to say that you can earn salvation through being poor. It's not poverty theology as opposed to prosperity theology. The point of the story is that death is the great equalizer. Rich men die and poor men die. It doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars or one cent to your name. You will die. And death has no discrimination. You will die the same death as a man who has all the riches in the world. The rich man dies and the poor man dies. And the poor man, Lazarus, dies and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now to a Jewish mind, this would have been the greatest blessing conceivable. Some translations have Abraham's bosom. The idea is that he was in the place next to Abraham. Amazing. The idea here is that not only did Lazarus go instantly to heaven after death, but he went to a privileged place in heaven at Abraham's side, the founder of the Israelite people, the father of, of the Jews. No higher place could be conceived of than to be in heaven next to Abraham's side. And the poor man goes directly there. He experiences instant heaven after death. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham was justified by faith just as we are. He believed God and was, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was not uh, saved by a different means than we are today. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as he anticipated the coming of Christ and his work alone. 
And so we could conclude that Lazarus was justified in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so he was taken by the angels to Abraham's side. And verse 22 says, The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. The poor man experiences instant heaven. The rich man experiences instant hell. This text has no mention of purgatory. There is no mention of a waiting period. There is no intermission. There is no holding tank. There is no soul sleep. Immediately following physical death, the rich man dies and the text simply says, in Hades, being in torment. Hades is the New Testament word used to describe the, the, the place of hell. It's the abode of the damned. It's the place unbelievers go to, to face eternal judgment. It's a, it's a term that was used in the Old Testament more generally to describe the, the place where people go when they die, but the New Testament becomes more specific and is the place where unbelievers go. And here, Hades is seen as, as the place of, of torment. That hell is seen as a place of physical suffering. And he lifts up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. For I am in agony, in anguish in this flame. The poor man was, was, was poor in life and he's rich in death. The rich man was, was rich in life and he's poor in death. The poor man was hungry in life and now he is filled. The rich man was filled in life and now he is empty. The poor man was humiliated in life and now he is honored. The rich man was honored in life and now he is humiliated. And we see here the plain teaching that hell is not only a place of eternal darkness, hell is not only a place of eternal, um, of, of uh, unregenerate spirits raging in their hearts against God, but hell is a place of torment, of anguish. Jonathan Edwards who meditated long on the doctrine of hell, said this, Imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven or into a great furnace where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, all the while full of quick sense. What horror you would feel at the entrance of such a furnace. How long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had to endure the other 14 minutes? And what would be the effect on your soul if you knew that you must lie there enduring that torment to the full for 24 hours? And how much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? How vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? Well, then how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end? that after millions and millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than ever it was, and that you never, never would be delivered, how then would the heart of a poor creature sink under it? How utterly inexpressible and inconceivable must be the sinking of the soul in such a case. This is the rich man. His wealth is gone. His, his money can't save him on the day of judgment. His, his home is is far in the past. And here he faces an eternity of God's wrath. And you'll note here that the rich man is not arguing with God. There is no cries of injustice. He's not saying to God, God, you have the wrong person. God, my sins are not that bad. God, why am I here? Because the truth is that everyone in hell knows they are guilty. They know that this is what they deserve. They know that this is the right punishment for their sins. And so, this rich man does not cry out injustice. Instead, you see here, he cries out for mercy. He cries for mercy, verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Can't you see me suffering? 
Can't you see me in torment? Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He's not asking for, for a pool. He's not asking for a bucket. He's asking for one drop of water. And his cry is, have mercy. Have mercy upon my soul. And don't take me out of here. Just ease my suffering with one drop of water. How many times have we seen cries for mercy in the Bible answered? How many times have we seen the psalmist say, I cried out to mercy to the Lord and the Lord answered me. He heard me from his holy temple. How many times have we seen Jesus hear people crying out for mercy and answering them and pouring his love and his compassion and his grace upon their lives? How many times have we seen that God is a merciful God and he will have pity and compassion upon those who are in times of distress. And in light of all the times we have seen God shown mercy, how striking is this passage? How astounding is this passage? How unsettling is it to see that this rich man's prayer for mercy goes unanswered? The answer is no. God will not have mercy on you. There will be no more mercy for your soul. There will be no compassion. There will be no pity. There will be no kindness. There will be not even a drop of water to relieve your suffering. There will be no more mercy in hell. Abraham said, verse 25, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm, a great grand canyon, if you will, a vast, unbridgeable gap that cannot be crossed has been fixed. Idea is, it's permanent. It's settled. For all eternity, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There is no mercy in hell. There is no compassion for those who have gone to this place. Not a drop of water will be given to those who are in Hades. Their eternity is fixed. It is permanent. The chasm between heaven and hell cannot be crossed and it cannot be changed. And this is, I believe... One of the greatest horrible things about hell is it is a place of utter hopelessness. There is no hope in hell. This man retains all of his personality. He knows who he is. He knows his life. He knows what he has done. He has all of his intellect. He knows. He remembers his five brothers. He remembers who Lazarus is. That's the guy who used to stand by my gate. He knows who Abraham is. He has memory. There is no cessation of consciousness in hell. And yet his cries for mercy go unanswered. In the words of Revelation 14.11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. John MacArthur has put it this way, take everything bad that has ever happened in your life, roll it all into one experience and make it permanent. Make all the pain, all the disappointment, all the failure, all the hatred, all the bitterness, all the fear, add it all up, make it permanent, and then add this, there is no hope. It cannot, will not ever get better. That knowledge would compound and exacerbate your suffering exponentially. If you were in the severest torture and the most profound and relentless torment and you were suffering, 
and knew there would be never be one moment of relief that nothing would ever change forever. The suffering would be inexpressible. And he said this, I just described hell. It is a place of eternal conscious torment where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Do you think this is out of control? Is this too much? Is this unfair? Do we look at this and our hearts say, God, that's not right. That's too much. It's out of proportion. I mean, how much do we sin in today in this life? We sin for what? 40, 50, 60 years? Our sins are, are finite, right? So it doesn't make sense that we would sin for a short amount of time on this life and then eternity in hell would be the punishment and the consequences for our crime. That's out of control. It's not right. Surely at some point there's a terminal end in which there is no more conscious punishment. And if that's what our hearts respond, then we have not considered the person whom we have sinned against. We have not considered the fact that the greatness of one's crime is measured by the dignity of the person that your crime is against. We haven't considered the, the idea that, that against you and you alone I have sinned, Psalm 51, that all of our sins are against God who is of infinite honor and infinite dignity and infinite worth. You could come to me today and say, Dan, you're a fool. And I'd be offended, but you sleep well tonight. But if you walk into the Oval Office and say to President of the United States, you're a fool, you will have the military at your door and the Secret Service pounding at your house. The greatness of a crime is measured by the dignity of the person that you've sinned against. The greater the dignity, the greater the crime, the greater the punishment. And if you sin against God, who is of infinite value, then the only just response is eternity in a place of conscious torment. And so Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Same word is used there for eternal. Ionios. Eternal punishment, eternal life, both endure forever. If you want to wipe hell away from your Bibles, you need to wipe heaven as well. And as much as we would long to turn this doctrine into something that it is not, it is plain in Scripture. And if rightly understood, it will lead us deeper into an understanding of God's gospel and his grace. Verse 27, the rich man realizes his pleas for mercy is going answered. There will be no mercy for him. There will not be a drop of cold water given to him. He realizes his fate is sealed. And so he ceases to argue his case and instead what happens is he becomes a missionary. He becomes an evangelist. He develops an outreaching heart. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. He knows his brothers. He remembers them. He knows they're living in sin. He knows they're living just as he did in self-indulgent lives that they don't believe the God of the Bible and he, he longs for them to be rescued, to experience salvation. And so he says, send Lazarus as a missionary to my home. If Lazarus can warn them of the judgment that is to come, then they could be saved and not come to this place. Brothers and sisters, how many people in hell would, would give anything to hear the message that we're hearing today? To be given the opportunity to repent, 
to give him space to, to hear mercy and to receive grace. But Abraham says to Lazarus, verse 28, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear that. Moses and the prophets, a, a term that refers to the Old Testament scriptures. Two divisions in the Old Testament. Moses, the law, first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, which describe the rest of the Bible. Abraham says to, to the rich man in hell, your brothers have the Old Testament scriptures. Your brothers have the Bible, all of the scriptures that were written up to that point in time. They have the Old Testament. Let them read the Old Testament. Let them hear the Old Testament. Let them believe the Old Testament. And what was in the Old Testament that if they believed this message, they would be saved from the place of torment? Well, what was in the Old Testament was, was the gospel. It was the gospel proclaimed from the standpoint of anticipation, just as the gospel is proclaimed from the standpoint of Fulfillment in the New Testament. Both Old Testament and New Testament testified to the same message in a unified way, although from different standpoints. The Old Testament proclaimed that a man can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the coming work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, alone. It was not a different message from the New Testament. It was not that the Old Testament taught salvation by works and the New Testament taught salvation by faith. No, It was that the Old Testament taught that God is a holy God, that we are wretched sinners, that the only way to be saved from our sin is if a blood sacrifice, a blood substitute is made in our place for our sins. And the Old Testament proclaimed the coming work of the Messiah, the Christ, who would be that substitute, who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world who would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who would bear our transgressions, who would be the man of sorrows, who would take our sins and would be crucified in our place. And Abraham says to the rich man, your brothers have the Old Testament. Let them listen to the testimony of a holy God, a sinful man, and faith in a sacrifice, a blood substitute who alone can take away sins. And if they will not listen, as the Old Testament proclaims to them this news, then they will not listen if a man rises from the dead. They will not listen no matter who, se- who we send them. They will not listen if we send them Lazarus. They will not send- listen if we send them a uh, hundred missionaries. If they will not listen to the scriptures, then no amount of miracles will regenerate their souls. Because the reason why they are not listening is not because of a lack of evidence. The reason why they are not listening is because they love their darkness and they hate the light. And he says to the rich man, they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Miracles are never the issue. The people of Jesus' day saw miracle after miracle after miracle They did not believe. The Pharisees in Jesus' day saw Jesus rise from the dead. They still did not believe. It is not miracles that is the issue. It is, will men hear the gospel message as is revealed in the Holy Scriptures? And would you notice that at this point in time, before the New Testament Scriptures were written, a man could be saved. I mean, Abraham was saved just with the little revelation he had. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A man could be, could be saved just by believing the amount of revelation that God had given up to that point as it pointed forward to the work of Christ. How much more are we privileged to have the whole of revelation which unfolds to us the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells this story to awaken us to the realities of eternity. He wants to to awaken us from our slumber. He wants to to shock us, to, 
startle us from, from following after the world's lies, from following after the devil's lies, from following after all that the world has to offer and all that the world promises us. And he tells a story to lead us to grace. He wants to lead us to the cross. He wants to impress the reality of coming hell and coming judgment upon our conscience that we may cry out for mercy and that we would see that grace alone, faith alone, Christ's work alone is the only way that we can come into the presence of God. The truth is that the doctrine of hell is the foundation for our understanding of the gospel, but in itself, this is insufficient. No man was simply scared into believing in Christ. We can't just preach hell and people will not believe in Christ if that is the only message we have. It is meant to draw us to greater reality, a greater purpose, which is the work of Christ on our behalf. And to understand in our hearts, what is it that happened there? What happened at Calvary? What really went on when Christ, his hands and his feet were nailed to that piece of wood and when he hung suspended? for those terrible hours, when darkness covered the land for three hours and the veil of the temple was torn in two, what, what happened? When Christ gave his life on our behalf. In Matthew 26, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was looking at the, the sufferings that he would suffer on the cross. And what he saw caused him so much distress that he, he was greatly distressed and it said that he, he sweat drops of blood and he even went so far as to say to the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as thou shalt will. What did he see? What was in the cup? What was in the cup that he would say, God, let it pass? And the answer is, what was in that cup was your hell. It was my hell. It was the full punishment that you and I deserved. It was the cup of God's wrath. And what was in the cup, if we were to have drunk what was in the cup, we would have spent eternity suffering the conscious punishment of the wrath of God in the lake of fire. And billions of years from now, we would still not have exhausted what was in that cup. Jesus looked at that cup and he sweat drops of blood. And he said, I'll drink it. I will drink it. This is not what I deserve. This is not what I have earned. I will drink that cup. And I will not only drink it, I will drink it and exhaust it. So that the penalty is paid in full. Because Jesus was a sacrifice of infinite worth and infinite value. He could exhaust a penalty which was infinite in nature. And he could satisfy that penalty in full. So not a single drop remains for any who would simply believe in him and trust in him and receive the finished work 
that he has accomplished. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is no more wrath. There is no more judgment. There is no more hell. There is no more condemnation. The wrath has been completely exhausted. The penalty has been completely paid. God's justice has been satisfied and all that is left is God's love and his favor and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And because of what Christ has done, we no longer fear an eternity in hell, but we look forward to an eternity in heaven. Revelation 22.1 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, if you are a member of Cornerstone Bible Church, if you love and know the Lord Jesus Christ, what I, what I would just say to you this morning is, is simply this, is is. Isn't Jesus? Isn't knowing Jesus more? Isn't that more precious than anything else in this world? Isn't knowing Christ better than all that the world would would offer? Isn't knowing Jesus better than houses or land, possessions, or success? Isn't knowing Jesus better than even good gifts like our families? Like the blessings God has given to us. Isn't just knowing Him and being found in Him? Aren't we rich? Aren't we rich? Because if we have Jesus, we have everything. And we say with Paul that we can count all things in life rubbish, whether it be our health, or education, or righteous works, or achievements, it's all, it's all rubbish. It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He is the precious treasure hidden in the field. We sell everything with joy so that we may obtain him. He is the pearl of great price. We have found him, and with joy... We sell everything to gain Christ. I also want to say to you, isn't the world a liar? Isn't Satan the biggest liar to promise us so much and deliver so little? Isn't the gospel beautiful? And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, what I would say to you is that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time when God's mercy and his grace and his compassion is offered to any who believe. Now is the day when your prayer for mercy will be answered by a loving God. Revelation 22:17 says the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price let's bow in prayer together well father your word this morning to us has taken us to the horrors of hell and also to the glories of heaven. We have been both terrified 
and we have been filled with joy and expressible, filled with glory because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our hell. Thank you for drinking the cup of our wrath. Thank you for taking the penalty that we deserved. Thank you for dying in our place, for being the blood sacrifice who takes away our sin. We thank you that this day, because of faith in you, there is not a single drop of God's wrath that we will ever experience in this life, that even the trials and the sufferings that we experience in this life are evidences, expressions of your grace toward us, your love toward us. We praise you. You are a great and awesome Savior. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for going to prepare a place for us that where you are, we may also be. And Lord, we long for that day. We long for you to return to this earth. We pray, come Lord Jesus. We long to be in heaven with you for endless ages to give you praise and glory and to rejoice in all that you have done to boast even in eternity only in the cross and only in the grace that you've given to us so we praise you this day and we pray that your name be glorified as we continue go deeper into the gospel of your grace and we ask this in Christ's precious name Amen